art, and sweat built the tool bag. This statement summarizes my interview with Roger Broward, the founder of Vito ProPack. Yes, this is the Building HVAC Science Podcast, and we want to help technicians do better work. And I think tool bags, toolboxes can lead to better work. Roger shares with us in this podcast the full story of his work life, which led him from a fine arts degree in sculpture to becoming a carpenter and building wooden lobster boats, which is not an easy task. Or as Roger said, it's like making a zucchini out of wood. Roger describes his frustrations in using various toolboxes and tool bags that became the impetus for him creating the Vito ProPack product line. Roger opines on how to become a successful inventor, and that is solve a real problem, have solid conversations, believe in your product, have conviction. And I'll add to that, iterate, design, iterate, build, and test. Roger can be, has been quoted as saying, I wanted a name for my product line that conveys the quality and durability of our products. Veto is a strong word that means to forbid or stop something. I wanted customers to know that our tool bags were built to last and would never let them down. There's a lot of good details in the show notes about summarizing Roger's history over the last 25 years as a carpenter, being fed up with the unnecessary tool hunts resulting in digger dump in his tool bag challenging your patients when you really just want to get to work. And even though there's been attempts at improving tool carrying and storing, it seems like a trivial issue, but you know, even deep pocketed fabric inserts that fit in around a five gallon bucket, Roger describes how he kind of iterated around that topic and making tools more transportable and making the storage much less awkward and removing that pileup of interlocking tools. Roger's products cover a wide array of craftsmen, tradesmen, contractors. I think there's something in this for everybody to really listen to. So without further ado, let's get into Roger Broward describing the Vito ProPack story. Building HVAC Science reporting in with Roger Broward. How are you, Roger? I am great. Thank you, Bill. Well, thank you for your extreme patience. You coined a phrase just a couple of minutes ago, we're too mature to get upset. <laughs> I like that because sometimes people get really whacked out over things. And I'm going to say, you've seen a lot in your life. You've done a lot in your life. What I'm interested in you sharing with our listeners is where you got to the point where Roger, and if you didn't know, Roger created the brand Vito, Vito Pro Pack of tool bags, tool cases. So Roger, why don't you start up? Tell us where things started for you. I think just a little dive into my background to lay the foundation for where the idea for the tool bags came. It was, as I say, I, I have a fine arts degree, a major in sculpture, but I always worked as a carpenter to support myself. And I worked in Connecticut on a framing crew, framing apartment buildings, one winter and summer. And then another year I worked for a roofer. And this is all in Connecticut. And then I got a job on the coast of Maine up on Deer Isle building wooden lobster boats, which is very technical. And I like to use the analogy of like, how would you make a zucchini out of wood? Because nothing not is some level or straight on a lobster boat or on any boat, pretty much. It was a great experience. I was 21, 22 years old. We would get a pile of rough stone white oak on one side of the building that would become 
the keel assembly. The keels are usually six inches thick by 12 inches wide, a 24 foot length of white oak. And then the stem, or that we call the front, the non-nautical term, the front of the lobster boat, and then the stern, which you'd have what's called deadwood, which is all the shaft log, which you drill a hole through. And the shaft logs were, of course, six inches thick by about 10 inches wide, and they were stacked up. And you had to bore a hole through those for the uh, propeller shaft. We'd put a uh, six-cylinder Ford engine in. Hmm. And also steam bend the oak frames. I could go into more detail, but that would take two hours to explain how to build a lobster boat. But it was a tremendous experience. And after six months, a pile of rough sawn white oak on one side of the building and then rough sawn cedar, which was all the planking. That became a lobster boat after six months. So it was a tremendous experience. I was getting paid $2.75 an hour. I was, as I said, 21 to 22 years old. The guy that I worked for, his name was Arno Day. He was a very well-known lobster boat designer and builder on the coast of Maine. and is known very well to this day. He's no longer around. But I had to move on. I had to make more money. And the opportunity came up to join a guy who is now a friend of mine, building houses and doing renovation at $5 an hour and worked with him for about five years. And then I got an opportunity to join the union, which was $6.75 an hour, which back then was really big money. Mm -hmm. And that was all form and concrete work. We built a sewage treatment plant. That was two years in construction on the Penobscot River, just south of Bangor, and then put a big addition on a paper mill. So all through this process, I made my own toolboxes, both in the lobster boat building shop and that those boxes had a center panel and the center panel was cut out of a half inch piece of plywood. And that center panel gave you a platform to dado out a piece of pine for the different widths of your chisels or screwdrivers. And those would be stored vertically in those slots and that would be screwed to the center panel. And that handle has the origin and design of our handle design that's in our tool bags. But we're building houses and doing renovation. The handle would be either a closet pole, a broomstick, or on occasion, a branch from a tree that had a nice sweep to it, strip the bark off it, drill the holes on either side of the end, drop, fit the handles in there, and then drive a nail through the edge of the ends and that would lock in the handle. So this is before nail guns. So everything was hand nailed. This is before compound miter. So to do a compound miter cut, like a rake and a soffit, that's a compound miter cut. We would draw that out and cut it by hand. And I made all of our nail boxes. And on the coast of Maine, when we were building houses, we used all galvanized nails for framing and also when we moved inside doing all the trim. So I even made our nail boxes. It was just something I enjoyed doing. So after living in Maine for 10 years, I ended up moving to New York City, pursued my art career, and got a job with working Dan Construction out of Howard Beach, Queens, and doing loft renovation at Soho and Tribeca, but found out very quickly that moving around the city with an open wooden toolbox did not work very well. Mm. And all my boxes were 24 inches on the inside to accommodate a two-foot level or the 24-inch leg of a framing square. So going squeezing in and out of a subway with a framing square sticking out was pretty dangerous. 
So I went down to Canal Street, which there were several hardware stores down there and in Tunnel Supply, which was more of an industrial supply slash hardware store. They had some soft side bags, and this would have been 1981, 1982. There were not a lot of soft side bags on the market, and the best one that I found was a 10-ounce cotton canvas bag that had a metal frame, and that's what we call a gate mount style, where it just opened up, and there were two leather straps to secure it and two leather handles. Well, when you opened it up on the inside, it was just a large open cavity. Mm-hmm. And you would put all your tools in there. So it was like a wrestling match of tools in there. And to get access to these tools, it was such a exercise of aggravation and frustration. You dig in there, you jab yourself with a sharp chisel or the Ugh. chisel. Your nice sharp edge of a chisel would rub up against a rat's tail file and you'd nick the sh- nice sharp edge of your chisel. Or you'd have to take everything out, put it on the floor, dig through it find what you need, and then put everything back in. So it was just very frustrating to work out of that. But that's what was available. It allowed me to close it up and get in and out of subways, move around the city. So after living in the city for a number of years, I moved out to Connecticut. And by then, that would have been in the early 90s. And a guy came out with a product called the Bucket Boss Liner. Hmm. which on construction site, there's always five-gallon buckets left over from taping drywall, and they're thrown in the dumpster. So this guy came up with this idea to make a fabric liner with vertical tiered pockets that fits around the outside of the bucket, and then fabric that fits on the inside to support the fabric pockets on the outside. So I tried that, and what I liked about it was it oriented all the tools vertically in staggered tier pockets, but it was around a five-gallon bucket. Tools stored on the outside. We were doing a high-end kitchen renovation and going into the customer's house one day, a cat's paw sticking out, uh, gouged out the door jam, unbeknownst to me at the time. So that was something else I had to repair. And another time, a dog ran out in front of me and it flipped over in the truck and it was like an explosion in a hardware store in the back of my truck. So the liner and also the fact that it fit around a 12 or the five ounce gallon bucket, the diameter is like 12 inches, you're six inches into the center and the bucket, it was not ergonomic to your body. So one weekend in 1998, I took the liner off, dumped all the tools out and laid it on my workbench. And when you flatten the liner out, there was 16 inches of width flattened out. So I ripped out a piece of quarter-inch Luan plywood that I had left over and ripped it about 16 inches wide by 18 inches long, radius the top, and did a cutout and duct taped some pipe insulation to replicate a grip. Then I took the bucket boss liner sleeve and slid it up onto the panel mm-hmm. and pop riveted to the panel. So now instead of fitting around a five-gallon bucket, it fit onto a flat panel. And then an American company called Plano that makes injection-molded fishing tackle boxes, they were the first ones to come out with a gate mouth style plastic bottom. And I thought that was brilliant because a plastic bottom offers three things, wear and tear protection, moisture protection, and stability to a loaded tool bag. But their bottom only returned up about three quarters of an inches, and it was very thin plastic, so the bottom was warped. But I thought it was a great idea. And I bought this gate mile style bag, just zipped up. 
and then there were two floppy handles and i cut out the zipper section and the floppy handles and just left about three inches of fabric that was stitched to the plastic base and then dropped this flat panel with the vertical tool pockets into Straight that into it put some hand clamps on it pinched it to the wooden panel drilled holes and pop riveted what was now a fabric and plastic base to this vertical wooden panel. So this would have been in 1998. We were doing a high-end kitchen renovation job. The guys came in, put the brand new granite countertops in on Friday. I told the customers, you can put away your hot plates, cook in the kitchen this weekend, and we will be back on Monday to put all the cabinet and draw poles on. Mm -hmm. So that weekend, I showed up with this very primitive prototype that I made and showed up with a coffee in hand and it was a beautiful spring morning first day you could wear a t-shirt and these guys that were helping me on the job said what the heck's out i said this is my new tool bag i said you guys are digging through your gate mouth style bags and you're digging through these tools and getting jabbed by chisels or screwdrivers and i said you're hearing heavy metal metal music crashing in your head i said i'm hearing <laughs> classical music the birds are chirping i can sip my coffee and just reach out and select the tool because i can see everything so that was really for me i just keep thinking there had to be a better way to store access and carry hand tools mm -hmm. and so this concept of storing them vertically with a panel the panel acted like a backbone it's like if you didn't have your backbone sitting down in a chair you just fall over so the backbone gave structure to fit into a fabric sleeve and on either side of the fabric sleeve could be stitched vertical tiered pockets so i worked out of it for oh, probably a month or so and just started to visualize it being able to close it up mm -hmm. so that everything was protected and secured a much higher plastic base for here in new england so that if you get out of your truck and there's a foot of snow right you can set the bag down and you're not gonna worry about the bottom fabric bottom wicking moisture i did a very primitive drawing i had a meeting with my accountant and i asked him if he knew of any patent attorneys he gave me a name of a guy here in connecticut and in two years time i got utility and design patents on nice. a tool bag and then it's once i got that it's like okay how do i get this manufactured and what i thought i would do is i would just license it mm -hmm. to a tool bag company that i already had manufacturing going on sure and ended up reaching out to two companies and got rejected because there were three toolings number one a metal tooling for the base number two a metal tooling for the handle and number three a metal tooling for the over molded rubber ergonomic grip toolings are very expensive and sure. they felt to get the return on their investment that the price of the tool bag would be too high and nobody would buy it most tool bags are selling for 29.95 maybe mm -hmm. 49.95 so i got rejected by them and now i had to figure out how I was going to get this manufactured. So do you want me to pause and continue? Yeah, this is tremendously interesting. I think you just took your practical aspects of what you encountered, working with your hands and with hand tools, and also to some extent, your visualization through your fine arts and sculpture and seeing things in 3D that allowed you to visualize something that was better. And kudos for you for doing it. I mean, there's so many people I don't know how many people, but I would imagine hundreds of thousands of people that have benefited from your tool bag the last few years. 
So take us forward. Yeah, continue to go. The intention, I just knew it from my experience. I you know 30 years of pounding nails right. and making sawdust from building wooden lobster boats to houses to form and concrete commercial work. And so I enjoy working. I really do. I like the physical, I like the intellectual challenge. And for me, I love quality. So having a quality work experience was something that I always strive for. And digging through a bag full of hand tools, wasting time and the aggravation of that, it just really rubbed me the wrong way. And I figured there had to be a better way. It, it kept so, you separated from your work. I'll say your art. This inconvenience, this repetitive inconvenience, and the damage and all those other aspects. So you appreciated there needed to be a better quality way to do this. And then you just you took the steps to execute. So please continue. Correct. Yeah. So it was, there's got to be a better way to store your hand tools, mm -hmm. whether you're a carpenter, electrician, HVAC tech, plumber, mason, you have these hand tools. And then how do you store these tools? How do you carry these tools? And how do you access them? And all the bags that were out there, they were designed by designers that had never seriously swung a hammer in their life. So there mm -hmm. was a disconnect. So now you have a tradesman that with 30 years of pounding nails and making sawdust, with this experience that I love to work, but I like to be organized. And I like to work efficiently. So digging through a bag of a pileup of hand tools was just so frustrating and aggravating. That's where the impetus came to keep pushing forward to this. So getting rejected by these tool bag companies, I was just going to license the idea of them because I didn't have any connection with manufacturing. And so for about a month, being dejected and figuring out, well, how the heck am I going to get these bags done? And I remember I have a house up in Nova Scotia one morning, walking from the house to the barn, beautiful, clear morning, and just saying, you got to figure this out, how to get this manufactured. And so when I got back to Connecticut, there was a store called Sports Authority, which is like a Dick sporting goods store. Mm -hmm. And I went in there looking at any kind of backpacks, any kind of bags that had innovation and attitude. Mm -hmm. And writing down the names of the manufacturer, like in backpacks, Jan Sports, OGO, going over gym bags, which were gym bags or nothing. It's just like a duffel bag. But then I went walking to the golf bag aisle and I was struck by lightning. Mm -hmm. I don't play golf, but all the golf bags have a plastic bottom, injection molded plastic bottom. And the soft part of the bag fits over a rim and it gets either stitched or riveted to the plastic bottom. And I said, that's it. Whatever factory makes a golf bag could make this tool bag. So I went home and called Titleist, Callaway, OGO, TaylorMade, Ping, Wilson, and asked to speak with their corporate attorneys because I had these patents. And it was through TaylorMade, the corporate attorney was a woman. And I mm -hmm. said, I have a patent idea for a tool bag. It has a plastic bottom, and therefore, I feel it could potentially be made in a golf bag factory. She called me back a couple of days later and gave me a name of a guy out in Newport Beach, California, because all the corporate headquarters for golf bag companies are in Los Angeles. Hmm. Golf bags used to be made in the USA, but no longer. The manufacturing moved to China for cost reasons. So she gave me a name of a guy. I called him up and told him what I wanted to do, what I was interested in doing. I had him sign an NDA, explained to him what I wanted to do. And he said, well, okay, why don't you send your drawings out? I said, I want to fly out and meet you in person. So I flew out to meet him. He was 
in army intelligence, a career army guy in army intelligence stationed in Southeast Asia. He had to learn to speak fluent Chinese to do his army intelligence work. But when he retired, he was a passionate golfer. He decided to set up his own business using his Chinese language skills, sourcing for American golf bag brands. So he had connections with Chinese golf bag factories. I flew out to LAX. He picked me up. I had a three-hour meeting with him. He was a relatively smart guy. He got what I was trying to do Mm -hmm. and said, I have to leave for China in about a month. And I had a local automotive seat and boat cover company make another sample. It was a little bit better than the sample that I made. So he took that sample and went to China. And it took a while. It took about three months. And he called me up one day. He said, Roger, guess what? And I said, well, I assume you got the sample. He said, I sure do. And I'm going to FedEx overnight it to you. So I was waiting, foaming at the mouth Mm -hmm. for this to show up. And I got the box, opened it up. And to replicate the handle and the bottom, because there was no information to make the tooling, they just used half-inch particle board or ABS board and shot it together with finish nails. But the soft part of the body, it was Mm -hmm. just the flaps as I had drawn it to unzip it with a center panel to cut out for the handle. But to see the way they stitched the vertical tear pockets, it was beautiful. And all the bottom row pockets were four inches wide. So there's four of them. So that's 16 inches. So basically, the bottom of the bag was 16 and a half to give you a quarter inch for material on either side of the four inch, four four inch pockets to accommodate for the thickness of the fabric. And then growing those lower row pockets were five and a half inches deep. The next four inch pockets growing out of those were six and a half inches deep. And then two two inch wide growing out of the four inch. Those are seven inches deep to capture the furl of a nut driver or a screwdriver. The furl is the lower part of the plastic handle. So mm-hmm. if your hand doesn't, that keeps your hand focused on the handle. That's what that part of the handle is called a furl. But the way they'd stitch, it was phenomenal. It's just like, oh my God, that's perfect. Just what I had in mind. And so he said, now they're going to need the information to make the tooling for the bottom. I figured out when I first designed the bag that first I had a 12 inches wide. That put you six inches into the center. That was too far away from your body. 11 inches seemed too long, Hmm. too wide. And then I brought it down to nine and a half inches. And that seemed like a sweet spot because you're only four and a half inches into the center of the bag. Mm Mm-hmm. So I went to the lumberyard and I bought, I don't know, it was a one by 10 or one by 12, number two pine, a 10 footer and ripped it nine and a half inches on my table saw, chopped four pieces, 16 and a half inches long, glued them up, clamped them together and then routed, took my router and I screwed it to a stump of a log through a wider board, screwed it to the stump of a log and then routed all the corners got rid of all the square edges and then also routed a foot on the bottom of it and then i put a coat of satin finish urethane sanded that because that raises the grain took a sharpie wrote my name and phone number and then two more coats of urethane and sent them this block of wood Mm -hmm. and from the block of wood they made a tooling and they never asked any questions but that's what they used to do and that was called pattern making where they would make cast parts i had no idea that there's a program that you can do 3D CAD work and send mm-hmm. them a 3D file and they can make a tooling from the 3D file. I did not know that. I was just flying by the seat of my pants trying sure. to get this done. 
So when it came time to do the handle, after I sent the block of wood, I made the handle out of half-inch paint-grade birch plywood, which has a radius top, kind of like in the lobster boat mm-hmm. pool boxes. And then I cut out the overmolded rubber grip out of solid maple, which clamshelled over the wooden handle and got the shape and the oval shape that fits in the palm of your hand and drew out the ergonomic detail with a pencil on that. And that would clamshell over and screw together. And I bought that little Dremel tool, which is like a dentist tool to cut Mm -hmm. out all the ergonomic detail. But I knew I would never get the exact detail that I wanted with that little Dremel tool. I was able to do the radiuses on the handle and the recess cutouts on that, but not the ergonomic detail. So stressing out, I picked up the phone book and looked under product development. And there was a guy in Danbury, Connecticut, which is about Hmm. an hour from me, called him up. His name was Emil Vacali. I said, I'm designing a handle for a tool bag. Can you do a computer generated drawing of this? And can I come up tomorrow? He said, yeah, come on up. So I went up and met with him and explained to him what I wanted to do. I was leaving in two days to go to my house up in Nova Scotia. I said, I'll blow that trip off. This is really important if you need me to stay here. He said, I don't need you to stay here. He said, you go to Nova Scotia, we'll fax back and forth. I said, I don't have a TV up there. I don't have a fax machine. I said, but what? I'll go up to the boat shop, give them 20 bucks, and I can go up to the boat shop every morning and fax back and forth. So I went to Nova Scotia. He would fax over a drawing of the handle and the grip. I'd go up to the shop and get the drawing. I'd mark it up, fax it back to him. Went back and forth about four times. And then finally, when we got the design that we wanted, he said, I can have a rapid prototype made of the handle and the grip. And when you get back here, you can hold it, you can feel it, you can chew on it, you can test it. If you're happy with it, then I can send the factory two files, one for the handle and one for the overmolded grip, and they can make the tooling from that. So it was like, thank God. And uh, I didn't have to whittle it out of wood. Wow. So he sent that to China, and then they made the first round sample of the handle and the grip and the base, and I got the first round sample of the tool bag. And the handle, the plastic handle was too thin. It wasn't in proportion and beefy enough for the tool bag. So my connection with the factory, his name was George. He said, Roger, it's time for you to go over there now and work in the factory and do all the detail. So there was no detail on the outside of the bag. So I flew over and then met him and stayed at an 18-hole golf resort way out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. and we would have the factory car pick me up in the morning and this guy, George, and go to the factory, and i get the sample and start designing all the detail on the outside, the two vertical webbings on either side, which were about 10 inches apart, which captured the horizontal pockets on the outside, so that would terminate under the two-inch, or rather inch-and-a-half wide webbings putting on the D-rings that you could clip whatever you want to clip on there, work gloves, keys, or whatever you want to clip on there, pockets on the end. So all the detail was designed on that in the daytime and even at night, because I go back to this resort, and there were like two restaurants and a bar there, and there was was no city. That's all I had. I was isolated out on this resort. Hmm. But it was three trips to China to design the first bag, get all the detail, what I call architectural detail on the outside of the bag. That was three trips to China to design the first bag, the Model XL. So that was done, placed POs, and took shipment 
of the bag in August of 2002. And before that, I came back with three all-black samples and the local lumberyard I used as a contractor. I had a meeting with the head buyer mm -hmm. and I showed him the samples. And I said, this is a tool bag design I've been working on. I'm going to be bringing these to market. He said, we're having a 100th annual anniversary and trade show down at the Greenwich Hyatt. He said, why don't you take a table out and get some feedback? I said, okay. So I had, I don't know, 500 cards made up, little four mm -hmm. by six cards saying, this is the Vito ProPack Model XL tool bag. It would be available in June, $119.95. And if you would be interested in purchasing, check the box. I didn't take anybody's credit card number. Mm -hmm. It was a two-day show. And I took 48 pre-orders. So he called me up. A couple of days later, he said, how'd you do? I said, well, I took 48 pre-orders. He goes, wow, if you took 24, I would have given you your first uh, PO. So he said, I'll give you your first PO of 80 bags. Mm -hmm. And it was promised to come at the end of June, but they didn't actually come in till the end of August. So I had to keep telling people right. you know, that it was put off. That was it. That's how it all started. And I subscribed to two construction magazines. One was called Fine Home Building, which was a four-color coffee table magazine. The other one was the Journal of Light Construction, which was the blue-collar version printed on newsprint. Mm -hmm. And they would have these five shows a year called JLC Live, construction trade shows. And the home show would start in Providence, Rhode Island in March, and then there'd be one in the Midwest, Chicago, Cincinnati, or Minneapolis, and there'd be one up either in Seattle or Portland, Oregon, or one down in Anaheim or Long Beach. And I mm -hmm. would do all five shows with wow. just this one bag, the Model XL, on a wany edge piece of oak from a sawmill with splayed legs and a little banner saying this is the Model XL Beetle Pro Pack tool bag. And that's how I started getting what, exposure from what, it. What are the, what's that year, that time frame again? That would have been in March 2003. Okay. So you're 20 years into it now. Congratulations on just sticking with it. You had a vision. You believe something should be different. Something could be better. And you carved a path out of nothing to get there. That's an amazing story. And just of sticking with it, if you know you have a good idea. It is. And a lot of guys don't know the story behind it. And on Instagram, there's the company Vito Proc Instagram. There's my personal one, mm -hmm. which is Vito Propact underscore. But when we first started using social media, I used to get a lot of comments from some guys, mostly union guys, saying, being sarcastic about the fact that the bags are made over in China. Mm -hmm. And that's a big issue. I can't get them made here. Nobody can even make them. The bags are too technical. And we're not set up here, it's tragically, we're not set up here in this country to make a technical product like our tool bags. It's pretty depressing. I would love to just fly to Ohio, not mm -hmm. get jet lagged, and right. stay there for a week and work on product and come back and be able to work on the house, around the house on the weekend instead of reverse jet lag. It takes me about eight days to recover when I'm over there. I've been to China over 60 times, that's 16 hours from New York to Shanghai, so a lot of hours in the silver tube flying mm -hmm. over there and would much prefer to fly to Ohio. <laughs> but I just tell these guys that are banging it out on their little smartphones, wisecrack messaging me, well, why don't you send your bag over with some chopsticks next time and saying, mm -hmm. look, why don't you walk in my shoes and try and bring a product like this to market? And, and make you know, it affordable. Try, yeah. Yeah. And you try and get it made in the U.S. You can't even get it made in the U.S. It's 
But anyways, it's something that I just believed in, that it was better than what other tool bags are out there. And I just felt because as a carpenter, I would always buy a product. I didn't care what it cost. If the product functioned better than what was out there, I didn't care what it cost. I'd buy it. I'm working smarter. I'm working more efficiently. And yes, some guys are like, oh, it was sticker shock. But other guys, they didn't even blink. Mm-hmm. And I have a quick little story. I don't know if you want me to tell this or not, if there's enough time. Uh, sure, about sure. That. There's a high-end woodworking store in Norwalk here. And he used to sell our bags. Uh, it's a woodcraft supply. There's 80 mm-hmm. of them throughout the country. And he had some of my tool bags. And his store is about 10 minutes from my house. The guy that owns his name was John. He called me up on Saturday morning. He said, Roger, you got to get over here. I said, why? He's kind of quirky guy. He said, just come on over here. Jan, you're trucking him over. I came over and this guy was from this old house TV show and magazine. And he had the LC bag in his hand. And he said, these are fantastic tool bags. I've never seen these before. We have to get these in Tommy Silva's hand. Tommy Silva is the lead carper on this old house, the TV show. So he gave me Tommy's address and I sent him two model XL tool bags and that was it. And didn't hear anything from anybody. And about two months later, this guy called me up and he would take the TV show videos and edit out the commercials to make how-to videos. Mm -hmm. So he called me up. He said, did you hear from Tommy yet on the tool bags? I said, no, I never heard back from him. He said, well, he was down in South Carolina in Charleston. They were working on a renovation product down there. He's finished. He's back home up in Lexington, Mass. They're restoring a historical house. Here's his cell number. Give him a call. So I called him up. I said, hey, Tommy, it's Roger from Vito Pro Pack Tool Bags. And he goes, oh, Roger. He said, yeah. He said, we got your tool bags. And he said, I'm going to tell you. He said, we get sent a lot of products. And he said, your product is the real deal. (laughs) And in fact, I don't even have it anymore. I said, what happened to it? He said, my brother stole it from me. And I gave the other (laughs) one to the other guy. So this was like in, I don't know, it was in January or something. It was in the wintertime. So I said, would you mind if I came up to just tell you the story behind this? And this is not Makita, DeWalt, mm-hmm. or Milwaukee Tool. This is just, I'm a carpenter and just bringing this tool bag to market. And he said, yeah, come on up. So I drove up there and pulled up to the job site. And there was like six feet of snow all plowed from the driveway. And all the contractors' trucks were in there. Got out of my truck and went on and asked for Tommy. He was upstairs working on something. I hollered out for him, and he came down. And I took him over to my van, and I showed him the very first round primitive prototype that I made and told him the story about it. And he was just like, wow, these are awesome. I said, well, I'll get you another Model XL if your brother stole it from you. He said, by the way, he said, why don't you stop into Arlington Coal and Lumber? That's where I buy my frame, my material. Mm-hmm. and see if you can get into there for them to sell it. And he said, it's about 15 minutes away. Here's the directions how to get there. And this would have been 2004. And so I drove to this Arlington Coal and Lumber, and it was an old coal and lumber place, and walked in. He said, meet with Joe Willem. He's in the hardware department, and talk to him. So I walked in. It was an old wooden creaking floor, and Joe Willem's in his smoke-filled cubicle. Mm-hmm. And I knocked on the window and said, Tommy Silva sent me over and he wanted me to introduce you to a tool bag uh, company that I own. 
So he comes out hacking away. And thank God didn't invite me into a smoke-filled cucumber uh, cubicle <laughs> and came over to the counter. And I put the bag up on the counter and unzipped it and showed him all the vertical tiered pockets on the inside. He's looking at it in a nicotine stupor. And basically, he said, how much does it retail for? I said, $119.95. He said, $120. I have bags over here for $29.95, $39.95. Why would somebody want to spend $120 on this? I said, well, there's no comparison to those bags. They don't have a plastic bottom. They have two floppy handles. It takes two hands to pick it up to bring the two handles together. My bag, you can go around and start picking up at the end of the day, tuck your worm drive, a 50-foot extension cord, and a four-foot level, and then take the other hand and grab your tool bag. Mm-hmm. You walked over to your tool bag with the stuff all underneath your hands. You'd have to put everything down, pick the bag up with two hands, bring it together. Then you can carry it with one hand. I said, all those little things were solved in this bag. And so he's just looking at me completely nonplussed about my pitch on this. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the door opens up and you hear this boom, boom, boom across the floor. And this big burly guy comes in with this black curly hair and a big grayish beard, sawdust hanging all over his hair with the winter coveralls on. And he comes right over to the bag and it's opened up and Mm -hmm. his big paws go right into the bag and he's sticking all of his fingers into the vertical tiered pockets. And he goes, whoa, what is this? (laughs) And I said to him, I said, it's a tool bag that I created called Vito Pro Pack. He says, oh, my God. He said, I can see all my in here. Pardon my French. Yeah. <laughs> and so he said, this is awesome. He said, where do you get these from? And I said, well, I'm trying to get them into here, but he doesn't want to take them in. He thinks they're too expensive. He says, well, how much are they? I said, $119.95. He stuck his hand into his pocket, pulled out a wad of cash, and, and threw six $20 bills on the counter mm-hmm. and walked out with it. So this is... When I was doing the JLC live show, it was after that. You ever heard of Stabila Levels? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a high-end German level company. I was at the JLC live show in Providence, and by then I had six bags, the LC, the XL, and the double XLF, and then the OTLC, the OTXL, and the OT double XL. Those are the three open tops. So I had three closed tops and three to- open tops. Gary Simmons, who managed the sales reps, he was the principal, came walking by my booth and said, I've never heard of this brand of tool bags. These are awesome. They're beautiful. And I said, yeah, it's a tool bag company that I started. He said, well, how are you building distribution? And I said, well, I'm kind of working on that. I've been talking with some reps and stuff. He said, okay, well, that's all. He didn't say anything. He said, how much are they? I gave him the prices. So the next day he came walking over with a sheet of paper Mm -hmm. and he said, Roger, He said, these bags are incredible bags. They are a premium product. And my reps are used to the pushback from building distribution on premium products because of the price sensitivity. He said, I will work with you to use our Stabila reps to help you build distribution with your product. Hmm. His name is Gary Simmons. And so it took two years and I had full distribution with Stabila reps, building distribution into lumber yards and contractor supply houses. And that example of this guy walking into this lumber yard, whereas this guy, Joe Willem, 
who never worked in the field. He didn't understand why mm-hmm. this bag would appeal. But the guy that came walking in, who was a carpenter, he got it right away. So the reps that work for Stabila, they're used to dealing with the buyers from lumber yards and contract of supply stores that, that push back on premium brands because of the pricing. Sure. So it took two years to build distribution into that. And so all my distribution throughout the U.S. was in lumberyards and contractor supply houses. And then in 2008, the recession hit. And that really hit the market construction hard, as everybody knows. People start spending money on their homes and things dried up. And I was getting emails from HVAC techs mm. saying, we love your product, but we need bigger pockets for our meters and testers. So I went to China and spent by now was with a new factory, a much better factory, and spent five weeks in the LC. But before I did that, there was a heating and cooling company near me in Westport, Connecticut. And I reached out to them and I said, how many techs do you have? He said, oh, we got about 24. There's the propane guys, there's the oil guys, and there's the cooling guys. And I said, well, next town over, I own a tool bag company. I understand how your HVAT techs work. And I would like to have them dump the tools out of their bags and use my mm-hmm. pick a bag out of my lineup and work out them for a month. And then I'm going to go out on service calls. I'll pick two guys a week to go out. So I would go over there at seven in the morning and go out on service calls with these techs working out of my bags that they'd already worked out of. Most of them picked the LC or the OTLC or the XL. So after doing that for, I don't know, a month and a half, Basically, understanding what their needs were and what differentiated them from how I worked as a carpenter is they used meters, and I did not use meters. I went to China after working with these HVAC techs, both on service calls, installations, and I even went out on a couple of demos, removals. So I went to China and taking the LC, keeping the same tooling for the bottom, but changed the tooling for the handle. Mm-hmm. So that the handle would fit over the fabric hinge. And now I designed a little slot at the bottom of the handle so that I mounted a clip on the shoulder strap, the padded section, so you could clip the shoulder strap to the handle. So when you're carrying the bag by the grip without the shoulder strap, it would not swing down underneath the bag. So you had to clear it every time. You could secure it to the handle. So that required a new tooling for the handle and the grip. So that way I took the LC and the XL, kept the tool pockets on the front the same, but mm-hmm. on the back, I added neoprene pockets, which is stretchy. It offers padding and it would stretch to accommodate the different size meters, clamp meters, multimeters that HVAC techs would use on that and gave more space in the back if they wanted to pack an impact drill driver or spare battery and so change the colors from the body fabric from brown for the contractor series to black with a gray trim and the lc became the tech lc the xl became the tech xl i did the xlt which is a combination laptop and tool bag and then the lt bag which was a pure laptop bag the mb which is a meter bag and the tp3 which is a little open tool pouch i did spent their work right through christmas Spent five weeks designing all those bags and then came home and placed POs. We did a heating and cooling trade show down in Annapolis, Maryland. 
Some reps came by that covered the Mid-Atlantic. They'd never seen the bags before. They're very interested, wanted to carry them, repping them through the Mid-Atlantic. We put together an agreement, and then they offered to build a full AAA-rated rep network in the heating and cooling market, and that took two years. Mm-hmm. So they built it into the heating and cooling market. So it's now it's sold in over 3,000 heating and cooling supply houses, train carrier, United Refrigeration, Michaels, Ferguson, Johnstone Supply. So that the heating and also too, heating and cooling te- technicians use a tool bag more than a carpenter would. A carpenter will wear a tool belt and then he'll, he'll have a bag or a box in his truck that he feeds out of. And heating and cooling is recession proof. My HVA system went down in my upstairs last week and had to have it replaced. And that's what I did. Yeah. Had it replaced. So it was like a sauna upstairs. And now it's very comfortable when I sleep at night. So that's the story about how I built it, put it together. And it's kind of become the premium brand in tool bags. It absolutely has. How many different markets and how many different bags approximately do you address? There's a contractor market, carpenter's market. That's one. The heating, cooling, that's our biggest market. Some guys have two or three bags. Some guys have six bags. Some guys have 20 bags. And they set them up as dedicated bags for specific Mm. functions. And I did that as a contractor, too. I had my drywall taping bag. I had one bag that carried all my routers, three-horse router, two-horse router, a laminate router. I had one bag that carried hand tools. That was a frustrated bag before Vito. (laughs) So the heating cooling is our biggest market. I designed a line of bags for the marine boating market. And there are 10 bags in that lineup. And those are made out of polyester canvas. So it looks like canvas, but it's not going to rot like cotton canvas. They all have a plastic bottom, but it's overbolted with about an eighth of an inch thick of TPR, thermoplastic rubber. So it's Hmm. grippy and non-marring. It's not going to slide off of a cambered deck house, and it's not going to scratch up bright work or deck. I worked with the head rigger up at the Mystic Seaport. They rebuilt the Mayflower II, which was built over in the UK between 1955 and 1957, sailed across to Plymouth, Massachusetts. It's tied up to a dock there for ever since, and it what they call hogged because it basically sits on the bottom and the mm-hmm. keel bellied, or they call that hogging. And they wouldn't sail anymore. So they towed it with the tug down to Mystic Seaport, put it up on the ways or on the hard, and rebuilt the whole thing. That was five years and all new framing, all new keel, all new planks. And the guy that did the rigging on that, Matt Otto, he can do contemporary yacht rigging, but he does historical rigging too. And mm-hmm. he did all the historical rigging. He also redesigned it. It's amazing what he does. I've been a member of the Seaport for years. I reached out to them several years back because they're always looking for money to fund a new building. And I said, well, how many shipwrights do you have? And they said, oh, we got about 20 shipwrights here. I said, well, have them pick out a tool bag and I'll donate tool bags to the shipwrights. So they sent a guy down to meet me, their marketing guy, to find out who I was and what Vito Propac was. And I gave him catalogs on our website. And then he came back and the bags that these guys wanted. And I got a very nice Christmas card from all of them sitting around having coffee with their feet up on a stump 
mm. with their tool bags. So I knew there was not a professional riggers bag on the market. There's this cheap, cheesy cotton riggers bag that has no plastic bottom. It's got floppy handles. Pockets are too small. And that they called the riggers bag. So I called them up and asked for the name of the head rigger at the seaport. And they gave me Matt Otto's name and his cell phone number. I called him up. I said, hey, Matt, it's Roger from Vito Propac. He goes, oh, Roger, we love your bags. He said, thank you so much. He said, I had a Home Cheapo bag. That's what I call the Husky brand yeah. bags. And I modified that to turn it into a Riggers bag. I said, well, I'd like to pick your brain and design a serious Riggers bag. He said, you're kidding. I said, no. And I said, I'll come up and meet you. Seaport's about an hour, about an hour and 15 minutes drive. So I went up and had a meeting with him. And two years in development and designed the Riggers bag. And that is a serious Riggers bag. And you can see it on my website. Yeah, the bottom is kidney shaped because he wears a climbing harness when he goes aloft. Mm-hmm. And that way he can clip it onto his climbing harness and wear it on either the left or his right side. There are pockets, interior pockets for his fids and marlin spikes as a place to keep his sunglasses. Because when he's up in the rigging, there's no shade. I designed bags, totes for lobster fishermen. These are heavy-duty totes that are wide open, so a lobster fisherman, he needs to throw his hoodie in there, his wool cap, his gloves, his lunch, his boots, and go down to the marina, jump in his skiff, and go out to the mooring to jump on his lobster boat. Now he's got a serious tote bag. If you go into the marine supply stores, you see the tote bags in there. It's for a woman that would carry her thermos of martinis and flip-flops. Whereas this bag is serious. It stands up by itself. It stays open. So you can take two hands to fill it up. The other ones, they don't stand up. You have to hold them open with two hands to load them up. It really differentiates itself. So there's two different sizes for commercial fishermen. Then there are two different sizes that actually zip up with interior pockets. The fisherman's has no interior pockets because this is just for raw bulk storage of Mm -hmm. their gear. And so the ones for a pleasure boat owner, they have interior pockets. It it zips up so you can close it up to secure everything. And then when you drop the flaps in, you can still access the vertical pockets on the inside. And then there are two tool pouches for marine techs. Any marine techs that would do heating and cooling on Hmm. high yachts or do the electronics, those are modeled on the MC base with a footprint of 8.5 by 10.5. How many bags in total, does uh, Vito make now? In total? I've lost count, Bill. I'm not sure. It's getting close to, I don't know, 150, 170 yeah. bags now. We carry 68 different parts, models. On yeah, Tech. with the yeah. V-swap now, we have these panels, swappable yep. panels. So It's a fascinating story, and I appreciate you taking the time to share it with our listeners. Uh, any closing thoughts for somebody? Maybe like the aspiring tool designer. It's been a long journey for you, but I think it's been a successful one. You stuck with it. Any inspiring thoughts for anyone out there who thinks they have a better idea? The thing is, I think that, and when I first had this, there used to be a meeting on the third Thursday of the month at the Fairfield Library of inventors, of people that Mm -hmm. ideas for things and how you about you go about either getting it manufactured and bringing it to market. And for me, the takeaway from that experience was some of the product that people had were pretty ridiculous. And they actually went ahead and invested a lot of money in it. 
And to me, it's like, why would you even bring that to market? It's really non-functional. Some guy, he took a pen and the little clip on the pen here, Mm -hmm. he added an emery board so that secretaries, while they were working, could do their nails. all All this time and energy to develop this product. And it never took off. And little secretaries weren't buying it, but little girls and toy stores are buying it. So they'd be by the cash register in a little plastic container. So mm-hmm. another guy designed, because he knocked the paint bucket off a stepladder, there's the paint tray that drops down. Right. And so the paint bucket was on the paint tray and he knocked it over. So he designed a plastic container that fit the bottom of a gallon paint can that would clip to the paint tray. But you could still, if you knock that stepladder over, the spank hands are going to go over. Some people desperately want to find an idea. They want to be an inventor. But I think the difference was you wanted to solve problems. Exactly. That that you experienced. And then you went out and you made absolutely sure other people saw the solution the way you did, the solution path the way you did. So that's the difference. You had, in some fields, they call them design partners. You didn't just go out there with an idea and say, somebody go buy this. I'm going to invest in it. You went out with an idea and said, here, try this. Let me know. Give me feedback. And you continue to do that today. I think that's a differentiating point. You were desperate to find an idea. You were desperate to solve a problem. I was desperate to solve a problem, Bill. And for me, it was not like I wanted to build this tool bag business and make a lot of money. That was never my intention. Yes. The intention was that I was so frustrated by the tool bags that were on the market that I knew I had an idea for a better tool bag. And I was so confident, I didn't really even test it for feedback. I just knew that it would sell. And so it was that solid conviction to knowing that this was a much better product than than what was out there. And I just intuitively knew how it had to be and how it had to design based on my experience. I love to work. I love to build things. I always did it. Even as a kid, I was always building things. And so I can forget about lunch working (laughs) on something. And it was always like that. And so to me, to be organized with your tools, I love tools and I love quality. I love quality tools. It's just such a good feeling. And to hold a tool bag that is well-made is a good feeling. To hold a, a cheap tool bag it just makes you feel, it just does not start your day good. Like yeah. holding this cheap web handles that doesn't give you a positive connection with a loaded tool bag. Holding web handles rather than an overmolded rubber ergonomic grip that's in proportion to a weighted tool bag. And it's just all that feel good just even by holding the bag, a loaded tool bag, which can be 30, 40 mm-hmm. pounds. It just gives you a good feeling. And the handle first originally, which is hinged, a lot of people know that, mm-hmm. that was not going to be hinged originally. And so to do that, I did a shiplap joint. And the first sample, it came back as a shiplap joint. And it would keep, creak and groan where they shiplap mm-hmm. it. And I'm going, some guy's got to throw an armful of two by six studs in there. It's going to hit that handle. It's going to break it. So I kept pushing it back and forth. And I finally forced it. So it broke. I was hinging it back and forth. And I'm going, you know what? This is a better solution. Yeah. Have the handle hinge. It <laughs> offers two things. Side boxes, the guy can collapse the handle, put it in a side box. It also makes a, gives you a livelier load dynamic to carry yep. a loader bag rather than a stiff connected handle. So whatever you're doing, 
it has to really solve a problem and perform better than what was out there. And you have to believe in it and to do all the work that's involved to bring it to market. So that kind of in a nutshell, that's what it took. And 20 years later, more than 20 years later, because it all started from when I made that sample back in 98. So you still go to trade shows? I know you, uh, the AHR trade show. So people in the HVAC industry uh, stop by the Vito Probeck booth uh, next year. It's Orlando, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That was down in Orlando. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember meeting you years ago at a very small table at a trade show at HR. I can't remember the venue, but it was like downstairs and back at a small table. It might've been the first year or second year you were there. Okay. And, and now it's very different. Let me tell you, it's very different. What's the size of your booth now? Well, it's funny because we did the show down in Atlanta with the mm-hmm. one that you went to. Yep. And the woman that worked for me, they live out in Ohio. They went down to set the booth up. I was going to go down. They said, you don't have to come down. You're just getting our way. Well, let us set the booth up. And they're farm girls. Mm-hmm. They, they have farms. They know how to work. I went down. I, was, I can't remember. But the show was going to start the, the next day. And so I got down, flew down there, checked into the hotel. And I don't know, it was like one o'clock. And I called uh, Jill up and said, well, I said, I'm all checked into the hotel. I said, I'll come over if you need me. Give me a hand. They said, Raj, we don't need you. We're all done. Why don't you come meet us at this pub? We're dying. We're hungry. Why don't you come meet us at, at this show, at this pub and have lunch with us? So I met them at this pub. And so the next morning, going mm-hmm. over, walking in, the booth is 40 by 40. 40 by 40. Wow. Yeah. And then I started, it was 10 by 10 with just this table and one little bag. And so walking into that and seeing the booth set up with all the bags there, it was like this time warp. Yeah. Surreal. Back and seeing what was just one bag 20 years ago. And here's this booth 40 by 40 with all these product and these people that work for Vito now. And it was just like, damn, 20 years went fast. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just like, is this what it became? I never thought of the end result. I just believed yeah. in it and I just believed that it would help guys in their daily routine, whatever they were doing, to carry access and store their hand tools to make give them a better day. And guys say that. You know, it's amazing. I mean, it was in the airport. I was flying out to Austin to go visit my nieces. I'm standing there and all of a sudden they announce it boarding and I'm standing up there looking at my phone. This hand comes right in front of me and reaches out and he says, Roger. And I thought it was like a flight attendant telling me if I would bump up to the next flight to free mm-hmm. up the seat. And this guy goes, Roger, I love your tool bags. And he said, I'm a low voltage tech and I can't tell you how much I love your tool bags. Like that. I'm on my way to the flight. That I said, what's your name? I Kyle or something his name was. Mm. And so I gave him my card. It's right out of the blue. Yesterday, the heating and cooling techs came over to my house with the outside condenser and all the guts to the air handler. And they had Home Cheapo bags, Mm. Husky bags, backpacks, and the bag is all sagging, leaning over, and some CLC bags. So I was out there talking with those guys, and their trucks were opened up and all their stuff laying on the ground there. And so I said to one of them, I said, did you ever hear of Vito Propac tool bags? And the younger guy goes, what? And he disappeared around the corner and he came around with the Tech MC. I said, yeah. I said, that's it. He said, yeah, Vito Propac tool bags. He said, yeah, I love these bags. I said, oh, cool. And I'm talking to him with mm-hmm. my hat on that has the icon. Yeah. He didn't even see the icon. 
And I said, yeah. He said, what's on the bottom of the bag there? And he said, well, it's a plastic bottom. And I said, yeah, what else on there? And so he looks down. He says, well, there's the logo. And I said, yeah, there's something else on there, too. And he's looking there. He says, oh, there's an anchor. And I showed him on my arm because I have an mm -hmm. anchor tattooed on my arm. I said, yeah, just like the anchor here. And he's looking at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, yeah, it's a company that I started. He said, you started this? Yeah. I said, yeah. And the same thing. These guys came over to replace my hot water heater. And they came down the basement with the hand truck. And one guy had a plastic box. And the guy comes down. And I have all the first round samples that I got back on shelves down the basement. And the guy says to me, what are all these Vito Propac tool bags doing down here? I said, what's well, a company I started? He said, you started Vito Propac? And he ran out to his truck and he got his tech MCT. It's a feel-good thing because it's kind of a humanitarian because yeah. these guys, it's made their daily work routine better. It's improved it. And they even see that customers compliment them on because they show up with a professional-looking bag. The customers see that the tools are all organized. They're not slopped around in a five-gallon bucket with a Bavarian cream donut stuck to the handle. <laughs> and so it's like they see that this and it makes the customers feel that this guy cares about what he does. And he's serious about his tools and carrying them in a professional-looking tool bag on that, too. So all that stuff just validated what I believe and ultimately in the long run. Awesome. It's been a great talking with you this morning, and I look forward to seeing you again next year at the HR Expo Senior Person and wish you much health and happiness and a few trips to Nova Scotia or wherever floats your boat, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I'll be headed up there in a couple of weeks. Too. All right. All right. Thanks so much, Bill. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to the Building HAC Science podcast. Hope you found some interesting tidbits in this story from Roger Brard, the founder of Vito ProPack. And if you get a chance uh, and you go to the HR Expo, they have a 40 by 40 booth. They start out in a 10 by 10 booth or 40 by 40. It's tremendous, the amount of products and the vibrancy of what you can see there. Go into the show notes and you'll see a link to VitoProPack.com. And also Vito tool bags are available at True Tech Tools. You can just go to our brands page or follow the link in the show notes. The Building HVAC Science Podcast, a production of True Tech Tools Limited. In full disclosure, I'm an owner of True Tech, and the opinions voiced are those of my guests or myself, depending on who's speaking, of course. And if you're in the market for tools or test instruments, take a look at True Tech Tools. You can use the offer code HVACBS for a nice discount on most products. Thanks again for listening in. Until next time. <music>